Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, May 31st, and today, Julia Yaffe is here to talk about her mind-blowing interview with the Kremlin defector who just resigned from Russia's Foreign Service. He spills the beans about what's really going on inside Putin's government as the war in Ukraine rages on. And later on in the show, Teddy Schleifer stops by to discuss what's happening with the Giving Pledge. Will the uber-wealthy pony up? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm joined by everyone's favorite puck reporter, Julia Yaffe, to talk about what else? Russia and Ukraine. <laughs> How you doing, Julia? Hi, Peter. I actually want to talk to you about this really interesting piece you have up. It's called Ukraine Must Win, A Kremlin Defector Tells All. And you basically have an interview with um, this guy, Boris Bondarev. Um, correct me if I, my pronunciation is wrong. Yep, that was it. That was perfect. Yes, excellent. Thank you. <laughs> um, who was basically like a... Russian diplomat to the UN who resigned over Putin's invasion of Ukraine and said, for 20 years of my diplomatic career, I've seen different turns of our foreign policy, but never have I been so ashamed of my country as on February 24th of this year. Boris Bondarev posted this statement on LinkedIn saying, quote, those who conceive this war want only one thing, to remain in power forever. To achieve that, they are willing to sacrifice as many lives as it takes. I, as a Russian diplomat, uh, can no longer uh, be associated with this. Ukraine is a, is a pivotal uh, moment. There is only one choice, is to leave, to quit. You write that Bondarev is under Swiss guard and fearing for his safety. So before getting into like what he said to you about why he resigned and what his protests are about the invasion, like where is this person? And then how do you as a reporter like contact this person, like, without endangering him? Like, how does that even go down? He is in Geneva still, which is where he was based for the Russian Foreign Ministry, where he was working on arms control. I think the Swiss are providing security for him. I called him on his phone. I don't think he's yet at the point where he's undergone, you know, plastic surgery and has a, a new name and is living in some undisclosed Well, yeah, that location. was my assumption. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, not yet, I don't okay. think. And then... Secondly, do people from the Russian government frequently cross Putin and just like say, peace, man, like you suck? This happens very rarely. And that's by design because Putin has frequently said what would happen to traitors. He said that they would end up dead in a ditch. And that does often happen to people who he feels betrayed him and his government. Just think about Sergei Skripal, who was poisoned with Novichok in the UK in 2018. British police now believe that former Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia were poisoned with a nerve agent. They are calling it a deliberate act. He was seen to be a traitor. Boris Bondarev is the first Russian official to quit over this war publicly. There are a lot of people who have resigned quietly. There are people who, like the producer on Channel One who came out with that protest sign. It lasted all of four seconds. TV producer Marina Afskanakova jumps behind the presenter on Russia's state-run Channel One to speak out against the invasion of Ukraine before the newscast abruptly cuts away. She was then fired. 
This is the first time a relatively high-ranking Russian official has quit and done so publicly while excoriating both the foreign ministry where he worked and the entire Russian government policy in waging this war against Ukraine. So that's why it's notable. It wasn't just like one of many. This is the first. So what did he say? Not just like why he resigned and turned on Russia, but like what did he reveal to you when you had a conversation with him that you didn't previously know maybe about how the government is posturing publicly versus like how they're talking about this privately. Let me quickly start with what what I did know. He kind of confirmed what a, a lot of us had heard and understood about how the Russian government works in terms of gathering information and feeding it up to the top to Vladimir Putin, and that it is just a system of kissing ass, essentially. And if you're a diplomat out in the field somewhere, as he said, you're writing cables so that people in Moscow will like you and will like your cables. You're not sending real information to help them make real informed decisions. You're writing things to make them like you and to make them more likely to promote you and move you up the chain. And that their bosses, the ones they're writing to, are doing the same to their bosses who are doing the same to their bosses and that this goes all the way up to Vladimir Putin which is why he made so many miscalculations in this war because the information was so bad. One of the things that he revealed to me that was so terrifying was, like I said, he worked on nuclear disarmament. That was his issue. Mm -hmm. And he said that after the war started, most of his colleagues in Geneva were were really gung-ho about the war. But not only that, they were like, when are we going to finally nuke America? We got to fucking nuke them. And he's like, these aren't random babushki Mm -hmm. sitting around eating sunflower seeds, you know, and (laughs) futilely gossiping about hitting the Americans. These are people who know what nuclear weapons are. These are people who work on disarmament, on nuclear disarmament. And he was like, are you guys serious? Like, you know better. You know better and you know that the Americans will retaliate in kind with a nuclear Mm -hmm. weapon. And your kids, if they survive, will be living among nuclear ruins. And that all his colleagues were like, nah, Americans are too cowardly. They wouldn't dare to Mm -hmm. hit us. Which is also interesting to me because in the Russian imagination, the Americans are so omnipotent and wily and they're manipulating whole countries into going against Russia. But then at the same time, they're too cowardly to retaliate for a nuclear strike, which doesn't really quite make sense. And the last thing he told me that really shocked me was that he supports Alexei Navalny. Yeah, I, that jumped out at me too. Right? Like, how do you live like with, you're at the top level of the Russian government, foreign ministry, whatever, and you secretly like Navalny for years. <laughs> and just like, you have to like bite your tongue. It's just like wild. Yeah, and he told me he voted for him in the 2013 Moscow mayoral elections. I nearly fell out of my fucking chair when he said that. I mean, it's wild. And it's one of the things that Navalny has always alleged. He said, you know, when I'm under police convoy, a lot of the cops will be like, hey, man, we're with you. We're just kind of doing our jobs. We really like you. And he has always alleged that there's a lot of government, like support inside the government by not the top, top guys who are, you know, close to Putin, but the kind of more run-of-the-mill bureaucrats that they empathize with him. But this was just like, wow. He actually voted for him. 
The other thing that jumped out at me too from his interview was when you asked him about Putin's rationale for going to war and like, was it really about NATO expansion? And people have debated that, but he says something really interesting, which is Putin knows that there is a generation in Russia coming up that doesn't think about Russia in Cold War terms. They don't really Mm -hmm, care that mm -hmm. much about NATO. This is what he says to you, quote, and in the minds of these Kremlin elders, this new generation will come to power and destroy everything they've built in this new Soviet Union. So they have to act now or else it will be too late. Maybe that's why. In other words, like Putin, his cronies, like the older generation of, of leaders in Russia, like had to remind the younger folks in Russia that like there is a existential threat out there and we are a great power. Yeah. It's interesting because we've heard it from some pollsters who have done this polling that there is a big generational divide in Russia. And when I interviewed Jean-Michel Sherbach, the guy who set up this telegram channel to try to help people get through to their parents who had been essentially radicalized and brainwashed by Putin, right? There's, There's definitely this generational divide between westernized, kind of globalized young people who NATO and America don't register to them as enemies. They're used to Ukraine being a separate country. A lot of them were born after Ukrainian independence versus Putin's generation, which still can't get used to the idea over 30 years later that Ukraine is now a separate country, that it's not the Soviet Union, that we aren't in this eschatological standoff between Russia and the West. What was interesting to me is also that he said, he talked about the paranoia and the weird conspiracy theories that drive the thinking in the FSB and in the KGB, which is where Putin and his closest guys came from. I've spoken to people who used to serve in these agencies, and I have found them to be totally insane. Like, they make QAnon people look sane. It was interesting to hear him say, like, look, this is what they still teach at the FSB Academy. They teach them about the Masonic conspiracy, about the Dulles plan, which is this, like, old conspiracy theory about how John Foster Dulles had the secret plan to destroy and dismember Mm -hmm. the Soviet Union to this day that they used to teach it in the KGB Academy. And to this day, they're teaching these conspiracy theories as fact to FSB agents, which to me was like, oh, that makes sense. Like they really believe this shit. The punctuation mark on, on this interview is basically you ask him like, is there a compromise? Henry Kissinger who is apparently still alive. I just looked it up. He's 99. And Putin considers him one of his advisors. Like he would regularly speak to Kissinger and he's like, he gets me. Oh God, go away, man. (laughs) So Kissinger said last week that Ukraine should compromise and give up some of its territory. And Boris told you, hell no, you can't make peace because, and we've seen this like with Crimea, with Georgia, like Putin will just hit pause for a few years and then come on back. And, And he says- Any kind of compromise won't teach them anything. Only a total and clear defeat that is obvious to everyone will teach them. And that's really like harmonious with what Ukrainian officials tell you also, Julia, which is just like, this is it. We can't hit pause. We can't slow down. Like we have to like clearly push these people back and defeat them. Otherwise, this is going to keep happening. And Eastern Europe and, and Western Europe, frankly, will be destabilized forever unless we don't. Right. If we freeze this conflict, he'll 
regroup and then attack somewhere else again. What also really struck me about that is that until like a couple of days ago, he was a loyal servant or by all appearances mm-hmm. was a loyal servant of the Russian foreign ministry, which carries out Putin's diplomatic mission and is the like the interface for Putin with the world. And this guy is telling me truth is on Ukraine's side. Ukraine must win. Yeah. And he's saying the system we have in Russia is unfixable. It has to be destroyed. He was like, I hope that there's a coup and that these old paranoid dedushki in the Kremlin are swept out and that we build an entirely new system. That to me was also as like, you were just working essentially for the Kremlin. And now you're saying it all needs to be just raised to the ground. I mean, this is a remarkable interview. Also, I just Googled Boris Bondarev. He definitely looks like an extra in The Americans. Everyone Google, <laughs> Google this guy. He looks like straight out of central casting in a, like a spy but movie. But what's crazy, Peter, what's crazy is he's our age. What? This guy? Yeah, he's our age. Whoa. He looks like a, a distant uncle. Um, all right. Thank you, Julia. Thanks so much, Peter. Bye. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Teddy Schleifer on his beat right now. Hey, Peter. I have been at work writing about something significant happening this week that that no one really ever talks about. It's a room with tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in personal net worth that you'll never see a photo snapped of or a leak ever from, and this is the annual meeting of the Giving Pledge. Warren Buffett and Bill and Melinda Gates announced their idea of the Giving Pledge. They're asking America's billionaires to join them and make a moral pledge to give at least half their wealth away. The Giving Pledge, as people may know, is the commitment to give away over half of your money to philanthropic causes, either while you're alive or in your will, and it's signed by Tons of famous people you've heard of, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, who started the Giving Pledge, but also international billionaires in places you haven't heard of, to, you know, Brian Chesky at Airbnb or Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. It is sort of a a cool kids club in philanthropy. And the Giving Pledge is not just a pledge. That's actually a misnomer. It's also this annual meeting, which is taking place next week in uh, Ohio, California, This is the first annual meeting since COVID. The last two annual meetings have been virtual. It's also happening for the first time since Bill and Melinda Gates got divorced. I mean, this is sort of the mom and dad of this powerhouse philanthropic community. After nearly three decades of marriage, Bill and Melinda Gates have filed for divorce, ending what some consider one of the most consequential marriages in American history. One thing I'm definitely curious about is like, does it all seem cool? Their philanthropic effort is is their baby. And if they're the parents, there's going to be a lot of eyeballs on them on just how they interact, how they handle each other, stuff like that. I'm very interested in just like the cloak and dagger of this whole thing. I've been talking with people about what this is like. And it's a very unusual conference for a number of reasons. A, there's no staff that attend this, which is, I think, kind of unusual for the highly staffed world of kind of billionaires. But staff aren't allowed at this conference. It's only the principals which makes it more intimate, also makes it more secretive. I'm also thinking about like other kind of rich people conferences. I mean, take Sun Valley, which people primarily know of because of 
at the photographs, a Sun Valley, very public, right? And this is up there with Sun Valley. And like, you never hear this even happens. There's no other reporters staking it out. There's no photographs. It's just very quiet. So which is why I want to write about it, to kind of peel back the onion and show how major kind of charitable efforts come together. That story should be up, if not up already. Uh, it'll be up by the end of the day, Tuesday. And check it out at puck.news. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 